jazz and the mob. In the 1920s and 30s, the two were inextricably linked. Mobsters often owned early jazz clubs as a way to launder money and enjoy their favorite music. Musicians like Louis Armstrong and Frank Sinatra have well-documented ties to organized crime. But would jazz have been better off without the mobsters, or were they crucial to the genre's rise? Author T.J. English explores those questions in his new book, Dangerous Rhythms, Jazz and the Underworld. He joins us now from New York City. Hi, T.J. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for having me. So this story begins in New Orleans in the early 20th century. What was happening there that helped launch the relationship between jazz and the mob? Well, I posit a theory in the book that the um, the emergence of jazz, which is almost hard for us to understand now what a revolutionary act that music was and and how it rose up out of the streets and the plantations and from Mother Africa, a confluence of elements that brought about the creation of this music in the early years of the 20th century. Um, one of the theories I posit is that in some ways, jazz was a response to a 30-year reign of terror in the form of lynching, which was a reality for African Americans, particularly in the South, but also all around the United States. The reverberations of it were felt all around the United States. And this had created a climate of violence and a climate of disassociation. And jazz, in some ways, I think, was a response to that. It was an attempt to reconfigure the universe in some ways, not just create a new musical language, but create a new musical reality. Um, Jazz was an existential expression of the joy of life. It was an expression that was contrary to the world around the musicians, which was often hostile and menacing. And the music was an expression of freedom and joy. Um, And what's interesting also about this is the business side of it involved the musicians coupling with underworld figures, early mafia families formulated in New Orleans in the latter years of the 19th century and into the 20th century. And it explains to an extent why jazz musicians were willing to form partnerships with gangsters because the average African-American jazz musician had less to fear from a mafiosi than they did a white cracker out on the street or a a policeman. Uh, It was a hostile environment. And so jazz was uh, an attempt to create a path towards a kind of artistic expression that was unlike anything that had ever happened in the United States before musically. Well, when you think about organized crime, though, you often associate that with with violence. So how were these relationships formed? Well, um, the early Sicilians in New Orleans owned the nightclubs. Uh, They weren't called nightclubs. That word hadn't become uh, prominent. Uh, They were called honky-tonks, mostly. And these were the places where the musicians played. They were owned by the Sicilians. And so this relationship was born. And in fact, um, the early formations of jazz were given uh, a, a performance space through these clubs that were run by the immigrant class. So it was kind of a cohabitation, if you will, between the immigrant class and African-Americans, the descendants of slaves. And this is partly why jazz was greeted with hostility by 
the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant establishment. Jazz was seen as a little bit dangerous. Uh, that was uh, from the streets. It was music of the people. It was not the kind of music that you would find in music academies or universities or cultural institutions. Those places were reserved for classical music from Europe. Jazz was seen as something dangerous rising up out of the ghetto. It was vice music. It was music that was associated with gambling and prostitution and later, of course, illegal alcohol during the Prohibition era. So the violence, if there was a threat of violence, was sort of incorporated into the presentation of jazz. I mean, people came to clubs, I think, uh, to the honky-tonks, knowing that they were in many cases owned and run by underworld figures, and there wasn't a lot of violence in the clubs. There was some violence in the clubs, um, and it was believed that if you were working for a mob-connected club, it was less likely that there was going to be violence in the club because uh, people were intimidated by the very fact that this was a mob-controlled club. So in an interesting way, the Underworld Association regulated everything and kept it from being violent. We should note that you framed this book uh, primarily around Louis Armstrong and Frank Sinatra. And many people wouldn't consider Frank Sinatra a strictly jazz singer. Why did you decide to frame the book primarily around those two characters? Frank Sinatra loved jazz. Um, he... He, his roots were in jazz. Um, he loved jazz musicians. He employed them and used them whenever he could. He was seen by jazz musicians as the consummate jazz vocalist. Um, some of them revered him as a vocalist. His favorite singer was Billie Holiday. Um, Frank came from a very jazz-oriented way of, of thinking and performing. He became a popular musician. Um, so did Louis Armstrong. Um, and and Bing Crosby, another one that people might not think of as a jazz singer, but their roots were in jazz. And, and even more importantly with Sinatra, he rose out of the jazz culture. So what we were talking about before, clubs owned by Sicilians, the intermingling of underworld figures and musicians, Frank was kind of born into that. Um, he He was in a privileged position in a sense, born and raised in Hoboken, New Jersey, um, his mother was a prominent local political fixer. His godfather was a guy named Willie Moretti, who was a very powerful mafiosi in New Jersey. And so Frank had these associations from the very beginning. I wouldn't think of writing a book like this without dealing with Sinatra and his connections to the underworld. Explain a bit more about some of the cultural forces of the early 1900s and how they drew jazz musicians together with organized crime, who the members there were mostly ethnic white people or, or part of the so-called immigrant class. Yeah, well, um, it might be good, uh, useful for us to define the term mob, the mob, because I think people have kind of a, a vague or nebulous definition of what that is, and it helps explain things. A lot of people think that the United States, in, in the United States, uh, organized crime is run by the mafia and controlled by the mafia. That's not true. It never has been true. I think that's a popular culture and movies and television have given that impression. Yes, the mafia existed uh, to a great degree in the United States. It was part of the mob. The mob is a larger framework. The mob is that place where the underworld and the overworld 
intersect. So a corrupt politician who's on the take is part of the mob. Corrupt people in law enforcement who are involved in the criminal activity in one degree or another are part of the mob. The mob is the larger framework that includes um, the mafia. And so in the early years of the 20th century, and this is all, I think, very exciting because it explains things about America. The mob and the activities of the mob is where the races began to mix in the United States. And this is also very relevant and important to the history of jazz. Um, jazz was music that was designed for race mixing. Uh, the musicians were predominantly African-American, not entirely, but predominantly. And the early audiences in the clubs were almost exclusively white. There was a, a segregationist door policy at at door policy at a lot of the biggest clubs, like the Cotton Club and some of the others. But the music itself was undeniable and began to break down these barriers. Uh, it was almost on the cutting edge of racial diversity in many ways as this began to break down and jazz was a part of it and the mob's involvement was a part of it. So it was a very democratic process, uh, probably more democratic than the society at large. Uh, if you were a white person uh, with the inclination of wanting to know more about African-American culture, jazz was your point of entree. Uh, and it was the point of entree for all these criminal figures also, um, many who were there for the profit motive aspect of it, but also many who were there because they loved the music. I mean, jazz was popular for certain people in the way that hip-hop and rap would be popular for people in the 80s and 90s. It was the voice of the streets. People were drawn to it for that reason. Uh, its underworld associations were part of the attraction, not something you felt need to stay away from. So it was kind of an exciting uh way of stepping outside uh, the more kind of mundane, boring aspects and racially segregated aspects of American culture and, and, and going over to the wild side. This was all part of the attraction. We're talking to T.J. English. He's a journalist, screenwriter, and author of the book, Dangerous Rhythms, Jazz and the Underworld. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To share your thoughts or have your questions answered on future shows, tweet us at 1A. Let's get back to the conversation. Now, one of the most well-known jazz musicians of the 20th century is trumpeter Louis Armstrong, and here's his 1928 song, Muggles. Armstrong's close relationship with the mob began with his manager. How else did the mob play a role in Armstrong's career? Uh, boy, that's beautiful music. I love hearing that. Um, mostly it was uh, providing him with a form of protection. Um, Armstrong had a sense that his talent in the world of jazz was going to take him into places not many African-American uh, artists 
would find themselves. Um, and it could be perilous universe um, for anyone, much less an African-American who is treading new ground in these areas. And so he, being a, a kid from the streets, he sort of looked at the lay of the land and he realized that, look, if underworld figures are going to control the levers of power, uh, control my access to uh, make a, a living at this, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get me the biggest, most powerful gangster of them all. That was his thinking, and it became the thinking of a lot of musicians in the early decades of jazz that, that you would need, if you were going to uh, circulate amongst hoodlums, you would need a hoodlum on your side. And his idea was the biggest, strongest hoodlum of them all. It was a, uh, a, a club owner and later manager by the name of Joe Glazer, who becomes a kind of legendary figure in the history of jazz. Through his managing of Armstrong, he becomes popular and appealing to a lot of other musicians. And he, he takes on a lot of musicians for the next 60 or 70 years and becomes a prominent figure. Um, I'm sure Glazer or his surviving family members would take issue with me describing him as a gangster or a hoodlum. Although he was that in the beginning, he kind of went into the jazz business and theoretically moved away from that. But his his links to that world, his associations with that world was always part of his appeal and his calling card as a business uh, operative. And so um, Armstrong saw the value in that. I mean, Glazer would negotiate all of his deals. Uh, Glazer would give him a kind of muscle in the industry that he probably would not have had otherwise. Uh, and so he revered Glazer and was very loyal to him more or less right up t t till the end in in the early 1970s. But um, Lewis, in the end, did kind of turn against Glazer a little bit. I think he started to realize that the relationship in general in jazz was, it was kind of a plantation system hmm. uh, that had been established. And the white owners uh, of the clubs and the record labels and in the management positions controlled the economic livelihoods of the artists who were sort of uh, indentured servitude in, in a sense until black musicians started to rebel against that system during the years of the civil rights movement. But for a long time, that's what existed. And a lot of those great musicians like Armstrong and Duke Ellington and Cab Calloway and all the great musicians of the 20s and 30s, this was the system in place, and it's just the way it was, and there really wasn't much of a choice, and you either accepted and flourished within this system, or you weren't going to have a career in jazz. Here's an email we got from Dan, who says, My uncle, after his service in World War II, said he and his other black musician friends played jazz for the Chicago mob. He said they were treated well, fed well, always paid on time, and were often given free rooms. My uncle went on to become the head of the Black Musicians Union in Chicago. Dan, thanks for that message. So, TJ, part of what I hear you saying is there was protection for black jazz musicians through this relationship with the mob. But at the same time, it sounds as if the mob was benefiting more from that relationship than the musicians themselves. Is that fair? Well, you know, you can make an argument either way on that. Um I think it's fair to say that um, the mob was benefiting in a sense, and, and it was more than economic, really. Um, jazz, the business of jazz 
and the nightclubs became a way for the mob to franchise itself around the United States. So during Prohibition, which were kind, which was kind of the glory years uh, for this relationship of jazz and the underworld, giving the obvious fact that booze was illegal and it created this massive criminal racket and everything grew out of that. And jazz was sort of the soundtrack of that era, the jazz age, we call it. Um, and then in when Prohibition ended in 1933, um, the jazz clubs began, uh, some of them died out, but many of them did not. And in fact, it was a fertile period in the sense that Clubs were opening up in mid-sized cities, large cities all around the United States. And these were all mob-controlled clubs. So it all, the jazz clubs and the jazz business became a way for the mob to establish a beachhead in a lot of different cities that we might not think of as traditional mob cities. Back in just a moment. Let's continue the conversation with this message. My name is Ryan. I'm calling from Chicago. What I love about jazz is it's an um, interesting segue from spiritual plantation songs to the blues, to jazz, to R&B, to rock and roll, to punk rock, to rap music. Jazz music is the beginning of the aesthetic, that rock and roll kind of revolutionary aesthetic of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but it's more like sex, drugs, and jazz music. You can see the influence of jazz music on revolutionary genres of music like punk rock and rap because rap musicians are constantly sampling jazz music. Jazz is revolutionary. Let's talk about one of the most infamous gangsters of the 20th century, Al Capone. One of his favorite musicians was jazz pianist Fats Waller. And in 1937, Waller released The Joint is Jumpin'. The joint is jumping. It's really jumping. Come and cats and check your hats. I mean, the joint is jumping, the piano's thumping, the dancers are bumping. This is spot is more than hot. In fact, the joint is jumping. Check your weapon. To what extent did jazz music make it possible for Capone to operate as a mobster? Mm, wow, good question. Um, well, he would have operated as a mobster no matter what. Uh, jazz was. Um, his love of jazz was kind of incidental to all of that. I think what jazz did was give him an opportunity to present himself to the public as I, sort of a patron of the arts, in a sense, but also the deliverer of good times. I mean, that little clip is a really good example of jazz had an element uh, there was an element of jazz in the 20s that was just joyous and fun and that was epitomized by Fats Waller and others like him. Um, you can just listen to that music and see why anyone would be drawn to it. Um, Capone was. It was late night music. It was party music. Capone also loved opera. Uh, I always thought that opera appealed to his Italian roots, his Italian side, and jazz appealed to his American side. This was uh, one of the great expressions of American culture for particularly for African Americans in the immigrant class. And so his association with jazz made it appear as if he was someone who was on the cutting edge, uh, someone who understood what the, what the people wanted. Um, and he talked about that a lot. I mean, his association with Waller, with some of the others was, um, sort of a classic commingling of 
players from, from the era in which he existed. And I guess Jazz enhanced it in a way, certainly enhanced it. It wasn't that he was making tons of money off of it. I mean, this is something I think that needs to be made clear. It, jazz was um, not an opportunity for the gangsters to make a lot of money. Yes, they own and run the clubs, and in later years they became involved in record labels, and they certainly controlled the jukebox, jukebox business and how jazz was disseminated amongst the people. But the clubs themselves were, uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, they were largely money laundering operations. They were a front for the gangsters. The, the clubs were how they buried their profits, made it look like they were involved in legitimate business. It was all being done for, for tax purposes. Um, and this was great for jazz, by the way, because the clubs weren't burdened with the obligation of turning a profit necessarily. And this this helped to sustain jazz during uh, the years of its popularity and even in, in the years when jazz began to wane in popularity, it still remained uh, attractive in clubs because these clubs still served this function for the gangsters of, of as fronts to launder their profits. I, I, I don't want to undercut the, the danger that went along with some of these relationships. You recount a story in the book about Al Capone, who who loved Fats Waller so much that his associates kidnapped the musician. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, well, that's almost a lighthearted story that Fats Waller uh, loved to tell himself. He was performing at a club in Chicago. He's originally from Harlem in New York. He was performing at a club in Chicago. Capone saw him there, was really enamored with him, fell in love with him as an entertainer and a performer. The following night, um, Capone's henchman came into the club and at gunpoint kidnapped Fats Waller. That doesn't sound lighthearted. <laughs> maybe, maybe in the retelling it, it took on a different flavor, but in the moment I can't imagine being, well, you know, chuckling along with ending. it, you know? It's got a happy ending, though. They, they kidnapped him. They took him to a hotel in Cicero, a suburb of Chicago, and they said, look, you're going to spend a weekend here and you're going to perform as entertainment at, at Al's birthday party, which is going to stretch over the weekend. And you're not going anywhere. It's going to be your sole job to perform at this party over the weekend. And yeah, at, at first he responded just like you did. It sounded a little bit frightening. But he performed over a long weekend, and they just lavished him with cash. And he left there, he says, with $3,000 in his pocket. That would be the equivalent of at least about $30,000 in today's money. So it all worked out well. I can tell you a far more terrifying story, and one that did have reverberations throughout the jazz world for decades to come. And that's the story of Joey Lewis, who was a nightclub singer and comedian who was very popular in the 20s and 30s and really on into the 40s, 50s, and 60s. But back then he was at the height of his popularity. He was performing at a club in Chicago called Green Mill, great club that's still in existence mm -hmm. in Chicago. Um, and he was very popular. And another club had wanted to lure him away and made him an offer, which he accepted. And Green Mill was owned and run by Capone and other gangsters. And he told them he was leaving to go perform at this other club. And they said, uh, no, you're not. And he said, yes, I am. And I'd, Joey Lewis didn't really grasp, I think, the nature of the servitude that existed in this relationship. This was one of the dark sides of the relationship, which it was hard to get out of it. Once you work for the mob, you 
had a hard time walking away from it. And they told him in no uncertain terms, no, you are not leaving the club. He did. He went to a rival club and began a gig there. And some goons came to his hotel room and and uh, with knives and razor blades and slit his throat and cut him within a, a millimeter of his life. And he did survive it. He never sang again because his vocal cords never fully recovered. He went on to have a long career as a sort of a comedian. Um, but it was brutally violent. Pictures of it, uh, him in the hospital, wound up on the front page of the Chicago papers. And this was like a warning, actually, a cautionary tale to jazz musicians for decades to come, which is, yeah, you can enter into a relationship with these Southern Rule figures. In fact, you don't really have much choice if you're going to be in the business of jazz. And it could have great benefits for you, get you into the clubs and all the things that that a uh, person who called in said uh, the beneficial side of working for the mob, they were the clubs that tended to be the most professional and paid on time and, and all of that. But the downside of that was they owned you. And if you went afoul of them for any reason, there were often, well, not often, but sometimes there were violent repercussions. What, As you were writing the book, I, I, I'm wondering what you came to think about that idea of ownership because the the music there's the music right and then there are the people who play the music and then there's the commerce side of it and and what did you what did you come to think about how ownership was thought of at least at that period of time right well this is all very interesting and it became a sort of sub-narrative to this story that runs throughout the entire story. And we're talking about the development of jazz from its beginnings in the early uh, years of the century all the way to the 1980s, which is in Las Vegas, is uh, the trajectory of this narrative. And this that you're talking about, the ownership aspect, which is also totally linked to the issue of race, uh, goes through an evolutionary process, much as it did in the larger American society. So eventually, African-American musicians began to rebel against this plantation system. They were unhappy with it. Um, it, it. It started to change in the 1960s as the civil, right, civil rights movement came into being and started to in, influence things like the jazz business. And... Uh, musicians rebelled against it. Uh, the problem we've always had in the United States in this regard is that it's a capitalist system. So you're always going to butt up against the concept of the ownership class and the worker class and to what extent are the worker class taken advantage of. Um, and so when the mob, uh, when the musicians began to rebel against the mob, in some ways, they were rebelling against an onerous economic system that had grown up around this art form, um, and it needed to change. And when it did begin to change, and part of the reason it changed was incidental to jazz, it was simply government becoming more successful at prosecuting organized crime using things like racketeering laws to dismantle organized crime. This began in the late 70s and on into the 80s and 90s. And this had a major impact on the relationship between mob and the underworld because the 
the gangsters were separated from the clubs. And in Las Vegas, this was the casinos. The clubs were inside of the casinos. So we're talking about a very large and lucrative business. Uh, prosecutors, the Justice Department began to dismantle this relationship. And for a while in the 80s, this was kind of an existential threat for jazz because this sustaining model, this template that had been in existence for 80 years, was dismantled. And there was a real uh, question, legitimate question there for a while, of, of whether or not jazz could survive or would survive. You know, if these clubs that never really had to make a profit just existed as money laundering fronts, now they were being taken out of operation, or at least the mobsters' connections to them was being taken out of op operation. TJ, I want to circle back to this idea of, of where... Um, what happened with, with jazz once the government started to crack down more on organized crime. But I first want to touch on Frank Sinatra. He released One for My Baby in 1947. I could tell you a lot But you've got to be True to your code Just make it one Frank Sinatra is one of the people you, you framed the book around. How did his relationship with the mob evolve during his lifetime? Oh, boy, they've written lots of books about that subject. Um, he started, he, as I mentioned before, he was kind of born into it. His godfather was Willie Moretti, and at every stage of his early career, um, Sinatra had mobster associations that helped him in the development of his career. And I think he saw it as a thing to be used to his advantage. He never uh, acknowledged these relationships. In fact, he denied, denied them right up until the day that he died. But we now have a significant public record and body of information that shows the nature of his relationship with underworld figures. I think at certain times... He got in too deep. He sometimes got even in deeper than he wanted to, and he did express some regrets over the years uh, about the nature of his relationship with the underworld because, as I was saying before, once you go down that road, uh, it's hard to, to pull away from it. And so Sinatra found himself beholden to underworld figures in the later years of the 20th century. But there were also I guess times when he when he took the mob on as well. He, he took to the picket lines in Las Vegas to protest segregation in nightlife, and he was alongside other musicians, including Nat King Cole and Harry Belafonte. So what happened? Well, I think what he was doing there was taking on American society. Um, this kind of segregation and Jim Crow policy, which was very prevalent in Las Vegas, uh, was a throwback, and Sinatra had a, a, a political conscience. Uh, and he was uh, involved in a lot of issues on what some people might call the right side of the issues, race being one of them. He put his neck on the line and did a lot to try to change the uh, racial uh, segregation in the United States. And yes, because the clubs were owned by the mobsters, in a sense, he was bucking the mobsters and he was using his stature in the business to do that. Uh, but I think by the time he was doing it, he wasn't out there all on his own. He was part of a movement. 
it was part of a movement that could not be denied. Mm. And so this was changing the business of jazz, and he was he was going along with it. But Frank is a very complex character. I mean, I love his art and uh, admire it greatly. Um, but, you know, not n no one is all good or all bad, and that was certainly the case with Sinatra. TJ, we have just about a minute left here. We got this tweet from Jay Walk who says, What business practices that were employed by the mob are still continued by record labels today? And I guess I would broaden that out a little bit and say on the other side of writing this book, do you still see connections or um, reverberations from that relationship between jazz and the mob? Oh, yeah. This really could have been called the relationship between the music business and the underworld. I mean, the template that was created with jazz became the template for how the music business was run in the United States. So it bled over into rock and roll and into rap and hip hop. I mean, certainly rap and hip hop was even a slightly more violent version of it. The way it exists is the thuggish label owner or the thuggish club owner or uh, someone who's going to use the threat of violence to get what they want. Um, these are all aspects of certain uh, elements in American commerce in general, certainly true in the music business. Uh, it's sort of like the template was lay, laid down and versions a version of it still exists to this day. Well, we're going out on The Mooch by Duke Ellington, written in 1928. And we were speaking to T.J. English. He's author of the new book, Dangerous Rhythms, Jazz and the Underground. T.J., thanks for your time. Thank you. Remember, you can follow the show on Instagram at The1A Show. Today's producers were Avery J.C. Kleinman and Rupert Allman. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.